Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clearnote Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14? We turn this week to verses 15 through 20, 1 Corinthians 14, beginning with verse 15, reading through to verse 20. This is the word of God, and it is eternally true. What is the outcome then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will pray with the mind also. I will sing with the Spirit, and I will sing with the mind also. Otherwise, if you bless in the Spirit only, how will the one who fills the place of the ungifted say the amen at your giving of thanks, since he does not know what you are saying? For you are giving thanks well enough, but the other person is not edified. I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. However, in the church, I desire to speak five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also rather than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brethren, do not be children in your thinking. Yet in evil be infants, but in your thinking be mature. This is the word of the Lord. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of every heart here be acceptable in your sight, you who are our strength and our redeemer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The Apostle Paul uses the gift of tongues, but he himself does not separate tongues and understanding, whether his own understanding or the understanding of others. No use of this gift of tongues by the Apostle Paul is lacking comprehensibility. No gift of the use of tongues is lacking understanding. And so this leads us to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul doesn't speak in tongues without those tongues being interpreted. This is the meaning of his statement that both his spiritual prayers and his singing or praises are both, he says, quote, in the mind also. When he prays and sings, his words and his songs are understandable to himself for sure, but also to those around him. They are, quote, with understanding. Now again, we can't help but wonder what praying and singing, he labels it in the Spirit, what praying and singing in the Spirit without understanding would have been. Because that's the obvious alternative to with understanding. It makes no sense for you to exhort people to do it with understanding unless people are doing it without understanding. Right? Doesn't that make sense? So what is this without understanding? Now, again, there are various explanations of the gift of tongues without understanding, which really is to say the gift of tongues without interpretation. Some say this gift of tongues was the same gift the Holy Spirit gave to the disciples on the day of Pentecost, soon after our Lord's ascension into heaven. And we read that account in Acts 2, beginning with verse 4. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues, as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it 
that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born. So this is one possibility, one explanation that the tongues are Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic at that time, or that they'd be Mandarin and Spanish and and English today. And so here today, if we were in possession of the gift of tongues, we would have different people speaking from the Holy Spirit's uh, gifting. They would be speaking in Mandarin, Spanish, English, other tongues. The other possibility is that this gift of tongues was not a human language, but a spiritual language. And some have likened this gift of tongues in a spiritual language to the Apostle Paul speaking about prayer in Romans chapter 8 where he says this. He says, in the same way, the Spirit also helps us in our weakness. For we don't know how to pray as we should. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So groanings are out loud, but they're too deep for words. Not too soft, but too deep. In other words, they're so spiritual that words can't express them. And so they're referred to as groanings, too deep for words. And he, and this is speaking of God, he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he, the Spirit, intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And so you've had this experience, undoubtedly. Uh, Often it's at times where uh, you find out something that is so awful that you have no words to express the horror of what you're facing in your life. And you don't know how to pray. And so you go to God, and he gives you the words. They're not intelligible to you. They don't have to be intelligible. You pray, and the Holy Spirit takes his perfect knowledge of you to the Father, And the Father knows that the Spirit intercedes for us in our weakness. And we pray in our weakness. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when that's done in the church, in the hearing of the people of the church, that's a problem. And that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with. Now, I I do believe that second interpretation, that it wasn't Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, but rather spiritual language, that's the one I tend to. But look, Everybody gets on their high horse, not everybody, but lots of people get on their high horse about this, and, and they're sure that they know what it was. And, you know, there are a number of things in the Bible that are very difficult for us to know what the Holy Spirit is saying. Have you ever thought about the fact that the Holy Spirit is intentional in his ambiguity? Have you ever had your mother treat you that way, where your mother will tell you something, and it's a command, and intentionally she will say it to you in such a way that you have to work to figure out what she wants you to do. Sometimes it's because other people are listening and she doesn't want to be explicit in front of other people. You know, you let out some gas and and your mother says, and you have to think for a second why she just cleared her throat. And then you realize that she didn't want to say, don't do such and such, you know. Well, there are lots of reasons why the Holy Spirit can deal with us in Scripture in such a way that it's not explicit. For one thing, the Holy Spirit wants us to grow in our perceptions. That's why Jesus taught in parables. He didn't just teach in parables so that those who didn't have eyes to see wouldn't see. He also did it so that there would be a stretch, you know, a stretch goal for us, that 
that we would aspire to grow in our understanding, and so he leaves some of the work for us to do. It's a basic principle of writing. You don't ever write in such a way that nobody can be offended, unless you're writing on Facebook. And then you better make sure nobody can be offended. But you know, when you write, you're supposed to leave work for the reader to do. You ever had somebody be so clear with you that you just feel like you're being treated like a child? Well, the Holy Spirit is not accidentally being ambiguous in what he says to us. Does that make sense to you? When the Holy Spirit inspires confusion in Scripture, and I don't mean confusion, confusion. I mean, when you're left with a text of Scripture and you're going, what on earth does that mean? The Holy Spirit is not surprised that you're sitting there going, what on earth does that mean? And so here we have the Apostle Paul writing under the inspiration of Scripture about tongues in such a way it's not clear what's going on here. It isn't. It's clear in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit could have made it just as clear here as he, as he made it in the book of Acts. And so what we have is we have two divisions, or we have two sides in the church. We have one side that's absolutely clear they know what's going on here, right? And we have another side that's absolutely clear that they know what's going on here. All right? And listen, I believe in infant baptism. Okay, did I wake some of you up? Many of you don't believe in infant baptism. If we talk and argue, I'll say it's unbiblical not to baptize your children. You'll say to me, it's unbiblical to baptize your children. And I don't mind you saying that at all. But what I don't want you saying is, like Spurgeon says, you show me one place in the Bible where it tells us to baptize children and then I'll just shut up. No, 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 that's bombastic. Right? The Bible either does or doesn't teach infant baptism implicitly. Nobody has a silver bullet text on infant baptism. That's why we've been arguing about it for five centuries since the Reformation. That's why there are such excellent men on both sides of the issue. And so if somebody comes in this church and they believe in infant baptism, so that's me, and they're divisive over it, no, 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 this isn't a church for you. Because we recognize that the Holy Spirit could have said, baptize your babies. He made it that clear in the Old Testament. You know, they were circumcised at eight days. When you come to Scripture, where the Scripture is not clear, be humble and don't judge other Christians. If you read somebody or listen to somebody that says that they've solved a problem that's been going on for centuries, guess what? They haven't solved it. Hate to tell you. Okay. So, what are the tongues? We don't know. Those are the two options. I tend to believe that it was a spiritual language. Now, it could, though, be a human language, and it could be one of those languages that was sent by God as a discipline of the race of man for our grand arrogance in building the Tower of, of Babel. Let me read that account. In Genesis 11, we read this. They said, and it's referring to the inhabitants of the earth at that time, who were all together, they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven and let us make for ourselves a name. There's no better illustration of this than the Trump Towers. Okay? They're in Manhattan, 
and they have his name on them. And he's built for himself a name for himself, right? And he says, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So in other words, we don't want, it, we don't want not to be known. We don't want to be scattered. We want to make a name for ourselves. We want to build for ourselves. And we, 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 we don't want to be scattered, all right? Now the Lord says, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men have built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. The Lord doesn't like this. He doesn't want us building a name for ourselves. The Lord is what? The Lord is a jealous God. And what is he jealous for? He's jealous for his own glory. And he, the Bible says, will not what? He will not share his glory with any other. Okay, it's an old saying, he who builds to God and not to fame will never mark a building with his name. Okay? So God sees us. He doesn't like it. He says, come, let us go down and there confuse their language. (laughs) So that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth and they stopped building the city and therefore its name was called Babel because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Don't you love it when God wins? I mean, maybe I should ask you. Do you love it when God wins? Do you love it when God makes mincemeat of our pretenses and our pride? I mean, it's, it's so sweet. Right? Is that how you feel? Well, this is the diversity and pluralism our intellectuals are so very proud of. You realize that? What I just read to you is the diversity and pluralism that intellectuals are so proud of. It's the discipline of God. We each speak separate languages and are spread across the earth, not because nature is a glorious tapestry of diversity, but because nature was overruled by God, such that the unity of man became a cacophony which forced us to be scattered. Man's pride in diversity is a way for us to deny that our inability to understand each other and our being scattered across the face of the earth is God's discipline of our pride. And so what do we do? We always do the same thing. Precisely where God marks us with shame, we say, I'm proud of that. (laughs) Right? Come on, people. Look at yourself. This is who you are. It's not just me. I laugh because it's me, you know? I'll take pride precisely in the place where I should be ashamed of myself. You know why? Well, because my wife is telling me I should be ashamed of myself, and I'll be hanged if I'm going to be ashamed of myself if my wife tells me I should be ashamed of myself. Come on, man. Have you ever had a fight with your wife? She's right, you know? My wife, I, get, I sit down at the table, and, and I, I start, you know, barking because I'm hangry. 
right? And my wife says, how much coffee did you drink? Don't you ask me how much coffee I drank today. It has nothing to do with coffee. It has to do with the fact that I asked for lima beans. <laughs> right? So what we do is we take pride at the point where God has decreed shame for us. And this is sodomy. You know? God has said a sodomy is an abomination. Right? And we say, Talk with that! I'm going to have a gay pride parade. <laughs> you know? And so we just are proud and proud and proud. And now the church is proud. And everybody just proud, 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 proud. And God says it's an abomination. And the Bible says not just that it's an abomination, but it's not an accidental abomination. The Bible says that God gave them over to unnatural desires. It's just like diversity of languages. And it's just like... Uh, you know, borders and passports. All this stuff is a real pain if you actually look at it honestly. My wife and I were just south of the border because we love it south of the border. And so we got to the airport early, and you know how nice it is to get to the airport early, right? It's so awful to get there late. We were there hours early. And so we were just able to just take our time get some coffee, walk slowly. And finally, it's time to get on the plane. We go to get on, and they announce right before we go to get on the plane, they say, uh, make sure you have your visa. And I think, oh, you know, so I open up my briefcase, and sure enough, for some reason, I stuck it in the briefcase, and I pull it out, and I'm a superior human being. But I realize that because he said, make sure... There's probably people there that don't have, and Mary Lee says, oh, I threw it out. You what? You did what? Hours, hours ahead of time. <laughs> and now, as we're boarding the plane, my wife tells me she threw her visa out. <laughs> so I go up to the guy at the gate. <laughs> I say, I have my visa, because I was hoping she could get on mine. He says, now she has to have one. So he calls a guy, and I mean to tell you, we go flying through the airport. All the things that we were avoiding came true instantly, you know. And I mean, it took us forever to get through security. Forever, forever. And we get to security, and we have to worry about getting out. You know, because we have to go out through the lines that are being examined because that's where the visa special thingamabugger is, right? So they, they you know, they, they don't... So they take us out this gate, takes a while to get... <laughs> you know, normally it wouldn't matter, but this flight, it mattered that we get on it. So anyhow, we get out, and then I see way down where you check in for the flight is this place and there's a line a mile long and it's all the stupid idiots <laughs> you know that threw out their visas you know and there's this honking line you know <laughs> so but we have a delta guy with us and he cuts the line and then you have to fill out this form and i don't have my eyeglasses out and i can't read the tiny print and he's saying put your Middle initial there, put your, and then another page of all this crud, and then 30 bucks, and 
Then you run, and we had not checked our luggage. So we're lugging this. Luggage. <laughs> Language is fun. So we're lugging our luggage, and we get back to the line for security, right? And it's so long. And you know how you love people that cut in line, right? And somehow, they just simply didn't seem to care about whether or not we had stuff in our luggage. That, that the previous time, they took everything out of both of our suitcases, and, and we lost certain items, you know? A nail file, and, you know. We get back to the gate and barely made it on the plane. Now, many of you have had an experience similar to that if you've been overseas, and this is the glorious tapestry of diversity. This is what God did when he changed our language and scattered us over the face of the earth. It is not something to take pride in. Now, am I saying that we shouldn't take pride in our language, that we shouldn't take pride in our motherland? No, I'm not saying that. It would be a monster who didn't love his motherland. We are to love our mothers and we're to love our motherland. We are to love our mother tongue. I'm not making negative comments about your language or your nationality or anything like that. But what I'm saying is the separation of us through language and the scattering of us over the face of the earth is God's discipline. And we can't take pride in it because we didn't do anything good to get it. What we did was we were just like Eve who wanted to be like God. And that's why we have all the conflict that we have today, okay? So can we please live and think and write and argue biblically? You know, we don't have to make everything that's God's discipline into a point of pride. We all have failures. We all have sins. Let's not redefine all of our sins and failures as being the glorious diversity. Look, we've got enough diversity in the canopy of the rainforest in spiders and bugs. Enough there to last a lifetime. So let's not define languages. I mean, we have to study them. It's hard. Have you ever studied a language? It's very hard, <laughs> you know? All right. So this is what's going on. We have languages that are not being understood in this church, and because they're not being understood, what's going on is that the church is not being helped. Okay? And the way they're not being helped is that when they speak, whatever the language is, whether it's Aramaic or Hebrew or some other language, or whether it's a spiritual prayer language, the Apostle Paul, when he uses his language, and did you notice what he says about himself? Okay? In verse um, 18, he says, I thank God I speak in tongues more than you all. Did you smile when you read that? I, 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 you know, they're all taking pride. He said, I speak in tongues more than you all. And it's not just more than any one of you. He himself speaks in tongues more than cumulative, all the Corinthians. <laughs> okay? Now, why does the Apostle Paul do that? Is he sinning? No. Sometimes it's appropriate to say that the reason you're criticizing people with a video venue is not because you envy how large their church is. You know, you can say things like, look, I could, 
I could have a video venue too. You know, I could have a better video venue than you've ever had. But it's wrong. Sorry. It is wrong. In other words, when we're sometimes taking a position on principle, we have to remind those that we're dealing with and disciplining that it's not out of envy that we're saying this. And that's what the Apostle Paul's doing. He says, don't accuse me of being jealous and envious. I speak tongues more than all of you. All right, now, back to the point. If you're going to speak in tongues, speak so people understand you. Because why? Well, I'd rather speak... What does he say? He says... I desire to speak, verse 19, five words with my mind so that I may instruct others also. And 10,000 words in a tongue. Look, I speak in tongues more than all of you. I'd rather have five words that communicate and are helpful. Okay, now that's the principle. Now, where, where, and I'm going to make this quick. Where does the concept today that we have that some parts of the Protestant church speak in tongues and some don't come from. Well, in the book of Acts, there is a point at which the Apostle Paul comes to the city of Ephesus and he finds out that there are people who worship in Ephesus who have not received baptism in Jesus' name. Okay? Let me read to you that account. Because this is the context... Um, for the division that we have today. Okay. Um, Acts 19. It happened while Apollos, this is beginning with verse 1, was at Corinth that Paul passed through the upper country and came to Ephesus and found some disciples. He said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said to him, No, we have not even heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in him who was coming after him, that is, in Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands upon them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking with tongues and prophesying. Now, there's a large part of the church today who has decided that that account is normative. And so there's a large part of the Protestant church today that says that we should seek the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is evidenced by the speaking in tongues, because it happens here. But people, listen, this is a failure. It's a failure that they were baptized into John's baptism instead of Jesus. Why? Well, because Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So today, we should not have anybody not being baptized into the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Whereas back then, there were people that were only baptized into the baptism of John, which was a baptism of repentance, okay? And so, yeah, when the Apostle Paul got there, he saw that there was an absence of power, that there was an absence of uh, uh, the Holy Spirit. He said, what baptism? And so he corrected it. He baptized them in the name of Jesus. The Holy Spirit then came on them, and they spoke in tongues, and they prophesied. Now, We've had three baptisms here this morning. Have we heard people speaking in tongues and prophesying? No. Why not? I didn't tell them not to. 
Listen, the Holy Spirit, which is to say God, constantly changes the way he deals with different generations of people. You know, there are things going on today in the church that have never gone on before in the history of the church. Okay? What are they? Feminism. The church has never lived in a feminist culture. There has never been a feminist culture until the past century. Never. And so the church today is getting more intentional and careful. Uh, Well, in time... (laughs) That's generally what happens is at the beginning of any heresy, the heresy carries the day. But then the people of God begin to do their work, and all of a sudden, texts in Scripture that never made sense to previous generations make perfect sense. They see that that's the meaning of that Scripture. And so there are things that we will understand when we die that I, I know this sounds wacko, but... Nobody understood the way we understood it because nobody fought the battle that we're fighting. Does that make sense to you? And so, just because something occurs in Scripture doesn't mean it's normative. And so, yeah, they were baptized in Jesus' name. They received Trinitarian baptism, and consequently, they spoke in tongues and they prophesied. Okay? Now, does that mean that we need today to baptize baptize people in the Holy Spirit and have them speak in tongues and prophesy. No. Okay, now bear with me if you're out of a Pentecostal charismatic tradition, bear with me. Be patient. And so what happens is people today say, look, you haven't received the Holy Spirit until you're baptized in the Holy Spirit. And if you're baptized in the Holy Spirit, you'll speak in tongues. There are many churches today that say that you're a second-class Christian or you're not a Christian at all if you haven't spoken in tongues. And they take that from a text that's not normative. It's abnormal. You know, you don't go into a cancer ward to look at what an abdomen should look like. Okay? And so they look at this and they go, well, that's what we need to have. And so they try to get everybody to be baptized in the Holy Spirit and then to speak in tongues or prophesy. But generally speaking in tongues is better because you don't understand it. Because you really don't want somebody to speak in tongues and have it interpreted if it's from the Holy Spirit. And you sure don't want anybody prophesying. Unless it's one of these women that prophesies, oh, my people, my people, I just love you. Come to me because I just want to hold you tight. And I can't tell you how many of them I've heard in worship services. (laughs) I call it the heaving bosom school of prophecy. You know? Empty nest syndrome. (laughs) I mean, I love mothers, you know. I don't have anything against mothers, but I just haven't seen in Scripture that prophets line up with what mothers want to (laughs) say. You know, as a matter of fact, oftentimes I, I think prophets say maybe what women don't think should be said. Have you ever noticed that about the, the real prophets, right? Have you ever noticed that? Well, here, let me read one to you. This is Isaiah. And what you don't realize is that this is precisely the section that Isaiah is making reference to as we bring this text to an end. This is Isaiah chapter... um, uh, Isaiah chapter... (laughs) Sorry. Oh, wait. That's right. I didn't put it in my sermon. 
Okay, Isaiah 28. Let me read it to you. Isaiah 28, beginning with verse 1. Now listen, every single person who was Jewish in their background knew this was what Isaiah was making reference to here. I mean, what, what Paul was making reference to here in this letter, in 1 Corinthians. So here it is. God is rebuking his people. And this is what God says through the prophet Isaiah. He says, woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim. Yikes. And to the fading flower of its glorious beauty. Look, guys, this is not positive, right? You don't make reference publicly to them being drunkards, let alone a fading flower, you know? Try telling your middle-aged daughter she's a fading flower. Which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with what? Wine. Okay, dude, we got the point. Drunkards, now wine. Okay, overcome. Yep, we're getting the point. Okay. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent as a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction. This is not a woman's text. Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, this is three times now, is trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it's in his hand, he swallows it. In that day, now we're talking about the Lord of hosts and his people. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. And these also reel with wine. Is that three or four, Chris? That's four. Okay, he's a mathematician. (laughs) The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. Five. They are confused by wine. Six. They stagger from strong drink. Seven. They reel while having visions. Eight. They totter when rendering judgment, for all the tables are full of filthy vomit. Sounds like frat row. Without a single clean place. Okay, do you want people speaking prophecies at baptisms? To whom would he teach knowledge? So this is the context. Everybody's drunk. The prophets, the priests, the people, everybody's drunk. There's vomit on the table. You can't find a clean place to eat. And then he says, to whom would he teach knowledge and to whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk, those just taken from the breast. So now we have in parallel construction, little infants who have just been weaned from nursing, just taken from the breast. How much understanding are they capable of? They're about capable of the same amount of understanding as people that seven times over are drunk who are led by drunkard priests and prophets. Okay? And have vomited all over the table. Okay? For he says, 
Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. Indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips in a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they would not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be, order on order, order on order, line on line, here, here, little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. Okay, do you get it? It is not complimentary. And that's what the Apostle Paul is quoting. The Apostle Paul is saying, you people are like the ones the people of Israel that Isaiah is addressing. They're all drunk. They're led by drunkards. They vomited on the table. And so their teachers are reduced to saying, they're like little children taken from the breast. They're infants. They're incapable of... So it's line by line and inch by inch. Now, is that or is it not the perfect description of the church in America today? Come on. The church in America today hates discernment. It hates discernment. The church in America today has done everything it can to flatter one another and to make money off religion and to just be... Children! You know, I think about in our pastor's college where one of the men, you know, he reads scripture and then he looks up and he says, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I, can't, I can't tell my people those things. You know, they'll never put up with it. Nobody ever rebukes people in the churches I grew up in. No one. I can't go to them and say things like this. And I say, guess what? We can't do it in America either. You know, you cannot say anything critical to anybody today because we're all such shallow, pathetic children. We're all drunk. Now, I know you're not drunk, and I know that there's a clean place at the table, but that's not my point. My point is whatever immaturity and infantile spirituality is, that's America today. We're incapable of making any distinctions between lies and truth. You know? We read in the Romans, and Romans says you're justified by faith and not by works. And then we hit James and we say, we're justified by works and not by faith. And we just fry. We go, that's too difficult. You know, and it's like we've never, it's never occurred to us that the word justified can have two meanings. There are a lot of words spelled the same that have two meanings depending upon the usage. Right? And why are we so susceptible? We're susceptible because we have no ability and no willingness to do the hard work that teaches us in understanding be adults. And yet when it comes to the tax code, all of a sudden all of us become adults. 
all of a sudden we're capable of the most unbelievable careful distinctions. And of course the reason is that when it comes to the tax code, all of us want to justify ourselves. And so we're as precise as precise can be about what exemptions were allowed and what, you know, the minimum alternative task would mean for me. And then we even figure it out beforehand. A year beforehand, we tell our accountant that. And yet when it comes to preaching, it's like we want to be given milk. And we resent any pastor that tells us that we may not stay on milk. Here's what Hebrews says. The Apostle Paul had churches just like us. And the Apostle Paul says in Hebrews, and you remember what he's been teaching on, and it is an exotic teaching in Scripture, right? You want to, have, you, you want to see stars, read Scripture on Melchizedek. So don't be judgmental about the Hebrews because Melchizedek is difficult. So he's been teaching on Melchizedek, and here it's one of the places that any man who's ever taught or preached just loves it. Because the Apostle Paul says this in Hebrews 5.11. He says, concerning him, we have much to say. (laughs) Right? You know, I have much to say. Okay? Concerning him, we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is what? He's an infant. He's a baby. Do you like being called a baby? (laughs) Apostle Paul is calling us babies. Then he says, but, so this is an opposition to those who drink milk and are infants. He says, but, solid food is for the mature. And this has got to be one of my top five verses about being a pastor. Listen to what he says. Solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. The Apostle Paul says, yeah, yeah, Jesus was right. He, he, he said a little child among them. He said, unless you become like this little child, you will not inherit the king. Yeah, with regard to sin, be an infant. But in understanding, be men. I keep telling men my, uh, 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 that I talk to, I keep saying we're a bunch of women. And everybody gets offended. Women get offended because they think I'm saying there's something wrong with being a woman. No, no, no. There's something wrong with being a woman. Uh, uh. You know? And so I say to you women, if we have women in this church who are enslaved by the idols and lies of feminism, you have failed. It's not my job. What am I supposed to do with women in this church, honestly? It's hopeless. (laughs) 
The Bible says in Titus 2, it's the older women who are supposed to teach the younger women. I mean, I'm not saying I won't do it, right? But my brothers and I all agreed 20 years ago, we talked about it, and we said, look, if there is a home where the wife is the head of the home, it is impossible for the elders and pastors to do anything about it. Do you realize that? Do you realize it's impossible for your pastors and elders to correct a home where the woman is the head of the home? We can't do anything. We've tried. In understanding, we are to be mature. The older women are to instruct the younger women. Now, if you want to make me happy, older women, instruct the younger women. Because then I can come in and be a peacemaker when you've blown it with them. You know how you're a peacemaker when I've blown it with them. Well, Pastor Bailey goes a little over the top sometimes. Instead, I can say, well, you know, Don Spady, she goes over the top sometimes. Boy, would I love to try that hat on. You know, that Terry Wagner. You know, we love her. Bless her heart. But, you know, she goes over the top sometimes. You know, telling women to submit to their husbands. It's just nasty. In understanding, be men. Listen, it is hard, hard work to learn to discern between good and evil. And it's especially hard in a day that specializes in flattery and lies. There is no way that you are going to follow God if you are not absolutely obsessive about sitting under the preaching and teaching of God's word. And I know that that ends up saying that you come and listen to me. But about a third to a quarter to half the time, I won't be here. And whoever you listen to here, they'll do the same work. So it's not about me. But you have to do the hard work of discernment. Otherwise, when you die, you're going to face God, and you're going to give an accounting for your life. And if you lack discernment, he will hold you accountable for that, Christian, non-Christian, he will hold you accountable for not having discernment. He will hold you accountable for being a child. I can remember sitting in worship services week after week after week after week after month after year after year after year. And listening to my preacher, my pastor, and the question that went through my mind all those years was, you know, somewhere I once heard there was something called sanctification. And could, could somebody explain it to me? Because I had sin in my life. And I wanted to know how to be sanctified. All I ever got was, you know, God so loved the world that he gave his only... And I mean, that's a glorious truth. But that's not the whole Bible. You know, here the Apostle Paul says, in understanding be men, would somebody help me with my sin? Would somebody help me learn how to repent of sin as a Christian? that the solution is not for me to give my life to Jesus again. <laughs> you know, right? Anybody with me? And so listen, in understanding, be women, be men. Don't be a child. Okay? I know it's a pain to sit and listen to me. I know it. If I had to sit and listen to me, I'd pull my hair out. 
But there's no way that you are going to become mature as a Christian until you sit under the preaching of the word that doesn't flatter you, okay? It's not going to happen. God and his word doesn't flatter you, okay? So you should have some resemblance in the pulpit to what you feel when you open your Bibles. And did you hear Isaiah? And does Isaiah bear some resemblance to what you think God would say to you if he were talking to you? Right? You see your sin and you think, yeah, I'd, I'd have a whooping coming. Well, that's basically what a sermon's supposed to be. It's supposed to be meeting with Dad when he gets home and he says to you, hey, good here, good here, I love you, but don't do this. And that's what you see every time you open the Bible. And so your preachers, the older women of the church, should have just that same kind of love for you. Okay? So let's close our worship by singing. Let's pray.